important to remember that through the storm, God is still the Lord. He's still active. He's still in control, and that's one of the themes of um, our series in the book of Ruth. So we are on our last chapter here. I've stretched it out as long as I can. And um, we're going to read the whole of Ruth chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, the blue Bible in front of you is on page 224. And I'm going to make a reference in the sermon to 2 Samuel 7. If you just want to note that, page 259, if you're looking in the the blue pew Bible. Just have you remain seated as we look at this last chapter. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down, and then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take, the, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel, so that the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite the widow of Malon, I have brought, bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers from among the, great, the gate of this native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up a house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, 
has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. Uh, this would have been a good week to have one of the elders read the passage, given so many names that I rescued from that. You know, rescued them from that. Five weeks ago, we launched this series in Ruth with a sto- story of another woman. Remember her name, Meet Geis. Meet Geis was the one who was thrust into the position of taking care of the Frank family in Amsterdam. Anne Frank was a teenager, and Meepgeist worked for her father, Otto Frank. And the Nazis overran Amsterdam so quickly they couldn't get out of the country, so they hid in what was basically a jelly factory. And for two years, Meepgeist supplied all the needs for seven people, it turned out, in this little hiding place. And right at the end, terribly, tragically, they were discovered Just weeks before the end of the war, they were all taken to a concentration camp. They all died except for the father, Otto. And Meepgeis was the one who saved the diary of Anne Frank. And we still read it today. Following the war, Meepgeis lived maybe another 60 years, and she enjoyed talking to audiences about her role. And she would often end her speech by saying, even an ordinary secretary... Even an ordinary housewife or teenager can, in their own small way, turn on a small light in a dark room. And so the series for Ruth has been a small light. Even if you're small, like Ruth, uh, even if you're not noticed by anybody and you don't seem to have any real weight in the culture or in your community, you still can be used. There's another name I'd like to introduce you to this morning. Another name in the same time of history, and maybe you know him, Nicholas Winton. Nicholas Winton. Nicholas Winton was a stockbroker who lived in London, England during World War II. And in 1938, he was on his way to a ski trip in Switzerland. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Young man on his way to Switzerland to ski. And his friend calls him and said, hey, there's really something terrible happening in Europe. And would you come to Czechoslovakia and see the displaced Jewish people and the way they have to live now that Hitler is taking over? So really on a whim, Nicholas went and listened to his friends and went to Czechoslovakia. And he immediately got involved in rescuing Jewish children from the mainland in Europe and transporting them back to the UK. And he was, uh, he had to do all the logistics, and he would meet the children very briefly, but then he would immediately transport them out to some family that would keep them during the war. 
And most of them had stayed in England because many of their parents died. They were not able to reconnect with their family. In all, Winton was able to arrange for 665 children, I think. 665 children owed their life to Nicholas Winton. After the World War, the children, there was a list of children that Winton kept, but he didn't, he wasn't really able to keep up with them. And then his, I think his daughter, granddaughter, discovered this long list in a book, children's names, and he told her the story about it, and he didn't think it was that significant. And uh, it got picked up by a British television show, and he gets introduced to uh, a, a woman who did not know, uh, had not even known that she was rescued by Nicholas Winton. And they have a little TV clip about it, and I want to show it to you now. Back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. <laughs> and it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton. If so, could you stand up, please? watched that 10 times and cried and I tried to cry it all out so that when I saw it right now I wouldn't be crying but it has that effect doesn't it I mean this one man who was a stockbroker in England so on his way to a ski trip in Switzerland of all places and a friend calls him and says hey would you come take a look at this amazing Here's his quote, I never thought that what I would do would have such a big impact. There are some stories which we're not only an audience to, but may become participants in. There are some stories that you're just an audience to, but everyone at some point is asked to be a participant in some stories, and he became a participant Ruth was like Meep Geis in the sense that she was a small light. And Ruth was like Nicholas Winton. She became a participant in a much larger story. And in her lifetime, Ruth could never have imagined the people that would stand up and say, we, we owe our lives to your faithfulness. 
because she is the father of Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, who's the father of Jesus. So in some sense, we could have a little show right now and say, who owes their life to Ruth? And here in 2023, we would all just stand up and say, because of her small light, because her willingness to move from an audience to a participant, she was a part of a much larger story. And one purpose of this small book of Ruth sort of wedged in between these two towering books, Judges and Samuel, is to remind the reader today that God's still at work, even in dark times. God is still asking each of us today, no matter how small we may think our light is, to at some point in our life step out of the, be in the, in the audience. Step out of just being the judge of everything. And step into a life, a family, a city, a church, a stranger. And just be a small faithful light in another dark part of the world. It's, it's worth pausing just to consider where, where might God be calling you? Do you live your life as a participant? Or mostly, you're just in, in the audience. Ruth chapter 4. We unpacked this uh, conversation last week, verses 1 through 6, between these two potential con kinsman redeemer. You remember that? Ruth finds out that there's another kinsman redeemer. There's another man. And Boaz, being an upright man, has to give this guy his first shot. And he does that in verses 1 through 6. And we find out that, that uh, this guy is called Mr. So-and-so. He never even is given a name. And we discover that Mr. So-and-so primarily was interested in helping out if it helped him. Remember that, that, that he was trying to find out what kind of kinsman redeemer would this Mr. So-and-so be? Well, he was the kind of person that would help as long as it helped him back. And the real kinsman redeemer is somebody who pays so other people will prosper. And the first guy, Mr. So-and-so, wasn't interested in that. Thankfully, Boaz was. And one commentator we mentioned last week said this, by trying to preserve a name for himself, Mr. So-and-so ended up leaving himself nameless. And you're supposed to notice at the end of the chapter, verses 18 through 20, all those names that I mispronounced, you're supposed to notice, hey, all these names got in the book, but whose name didn't get in? Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so missed his chance to be a part of an epic narrative. And now nobody remembers who he is because he spent his whole life aiming at the wrong target. So in verses 7 and 8, Mr. and So-and-so's rejection becomes Boaz's opportunity and a very strange custom, which might be worth your st further study, is they, uh, Mr. So-and-so has to take off his sandal and give it to Boaz. I'm pretty sure we're glad we don't do that now. But Mr. So-and-so left without a name, and he left without a sandal. And then in verse 10, 9 and 10, Boaz 
says really what we've all been waiting for. I'm, I'm going to promise to marry Ruth. I mean, all of us in the hallmark moment have been waiting for this to happen. And these two beautiful verses of his commitment. And then 11 through 15, which I want to spend more time focusing on, there's what I call two scoops of blessings. It Wasn't it Raisin Bran? Right? Wasn't it two scoops? And so it's like one scoop of blessing from the witnesses at the city gate, uh, 11 and 12, and then another scoop of blessings from uh, Naomi's small group, the women that are in her small group. First of all, uh, the blessings from the town. Let's read that again together. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. This is the blessing of the witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So first do you, first do you recall the, rea the first reaction of the townspeople to Ruth? This is when it's helpful to go back in the series. Remember chapter 1? Ruth makes this epic pledge to Naomi that I'm going to, I'm your God's going to be my God and I'm going to stay with you even to death. And she's, she doesn't even respond. Naomi's so bitter, so, so closed into herself. She doesn't even respond to this beautiful, you know, commitment that Ruth has made. And then they come to town and all the people gather around Naomi and they say, is this Naomi? I mean, she's been gone for 10 or 15 years. And no one notices Ruth. Naomi doesn't point out Ruth. Nobody in the town notices Ruth. If, if you were filming it, it's like Ruth just begins to withdraw and she just becomes this fuzzy, shadowy figure. And it's been a complete 180 now. Now the, all the town is recognizing Ruth and they're giving their blessings to Ruth. And you see the, the shift because they want to incorporate her in their history, their, their story. May she be like Rachel and Leah. See, we, we want to bring her into our tribe. We want her to be now one of us. It's a, it's a sweet little thing. May she be like Rachel and Leah. And between these two women, in case you don't know, uh, they were wives of Jacob, and they together bore 12 sons who end up being the 12 tribes of Israel. And notice their blessing. Their prayer for Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah to build a house. We, we hope that like these 12 people built a house, built a nation, that she would give birth to somebody who would build a house that would have a legacy, that would have a heritage. And of course, we know the end of the story now. Certainly she does. And it's worth turning now to Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 just to notice verse 11. Uh, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is God talking to David in verse 11, chapter 7, 2 Samuel. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's a great promise. And it's so great to see hundreds of years before this promised blessing coming to Ruth and Boaz saying, hey, may, may your house be like the house of Rachel and Leah. Would you have uh, Ruth be a part of building something that's going to last forever? And she does. And that's fascinating, but I think the most unusual part of this genealogy is including Judah and, and Tamar. You know this story? Genesis 38. It's such a terrible story, I, I can't tell you all of it right now. You'll have to go read it for yourself, Genesis 38. It's not pretty, but Judah was one of the 12 sons. So he's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he had a son who married a woman named Tamar. So his son got married, so he has a daughter-in-law, and her name is Tamar. And his son dies. And then there's a strange series of events that leads to Tamar dressing up like a prostitute and unknowingly Judah sleeping with her. Now, how that happens, I don't know. But he goes to a town. He sees a prostitute. It happens to be his daughter-in-law. He sleeps with her. And wouldn't you know it, she gets pregnant. And she gets pregnant, and she gives birth to a son named Perez. And it's maybe helpful, just in case if you're in a family that has weird dynamics, to notice that all the family dynamics in, Gen in Genesis are terribly dysfunctional. I mean, it, this isn't Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. These are not stalwarts in uh, families. They, they've done some terrible things. And Tamar gets pregnant by her father-in-law, and she gives birth to a son named Perez. And Perez is all part of the genealogy of David. So in Jesus' genealogy, we have Judah, who slept with a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law. We have Tamar, who dressed up intentionally like a prostitute, hoping to sleep with her father-in-law. We have Rahab, who actually was a prostitute. And then we have Ruth, who, although has been faithful, she's from the Moabites, and nobody wants to have anything to do with the Moabites. And if you just think about it, like I was this week thinking, God, is this the best family tree you could choose? I mean, these aren't people who just have, like, a little brokenness. These are, like, gross I mean, I'm sorry to find out that I have this person in my family tree. And, and Jesus' family tree has got tons of these people. And, and I'm just asking, why does God do things this way? Why does God get so involved with so many twisted and broken people? Well, at least one reason is to help us see that God is a friend of sinners. Shows us something about the character of God. 
that he's interested in the grossest kind of people. To be a part of his family, to be a part of his lineage. Remember when Jesus came and what the religious people accused Jesus of being? Remember that? He's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. So the religious people who thought they were all squared away looked in on Jesus and said, Hey, buddy, I mean, if you were really God, you wouldn't have anything to do with these people. And they completely missed reading the Old Testament. Because that's all God has to do with people in the Old Testament is all kind of gross people. And he is the friend of sinners. And when Jesus died, he died between two sinners, two thieves, two probably terrorists. And the first person in paradise was who? One of those thieves. And you got to wonder what the angels are thinking. I mean, what are you doing here? You're, you're one of the grossest people we've had our eyes on. Yeah, I got here just because of Jesus. He's my friend. He told me I could come. Isn't that amazing? So, so if you're here and you've ever thought, I'm, I've just done too much. I, I've, I've gone too far away. There's no way God could have anything connected to me. Just read the Bible. You, you probably won't be as bad as many of these people in the Bible. And no matter how gross you think you are, Jesus has grace for you. He has enough grace for you. It's the best news. So one scoop of blessing, they're bringing Ruth into their lineage and saying, would you be a part of our tribe? And the second scoop is... From these women, her small group comes around her at her home with the baby. And notice there's three R's here. The Redeemer, that he would be renowned and he would be a restorer of life. Verses 14 and 15. A restorer of life I want to focus in on here because it means to to turn back or return. Now, now where have we heard that? This is extra credit. Chapter 1, remember that? The word return is used 12 times in chapter 1. Naomi is returning. And now in her returning in chapter 4, she's returning to life. She's being, her life is being restored because she has returned. In, in Naomi's returning, she finds God, a God who's willing to restore her bitter soul. Now, I want to read this part carefully because I listened to a podcast late last night and I thought, oh, this has some pieces that I want to put in to this sermon this morning. The podcast, if you've, never, if you've never heard it, is called The Place We Find Ourselves. It's a Christian counselor who mostly deals with people who've had a lot of suffering and trauma. And so if that's you, you might find help here. You kind of just scroll through the titles. And he interviews a guy named Kurt Thompson, who wrote, wrote a book on suffering called The Deepest Place, The Deepest Place. He also wrote another book called The Soul of Shame, which is really a good book, Kurt Thompson. I'll make sure Carly sends all this to you. So I'm just going to read something here that's pieced together my thoughts and his thoughts in Ruth. In chapter 1, Naomi renamed herself, remember? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter, call me a bitter old woman. And in her bitterness, 
Naomi became a judge. She judged God was out to get her. She judged nothing could ever happen to nothing good could ever happen to her again. This is this is just listen because this happens for people who get into bitter places into dark holes. They become a judge. They think they can see things clearly. The reason I'm here is God's out to get me. I'm judging. I'm judging God. Uh, nothing else could ever good happen in my life, so I'm, I'm judging my future. And Ruth narrated her life through a specific lens. Kurt Thompson calls this, she tells time in a certain way. Naomi's bitterness, her brokenness, her trauma, which was real. She lost a husband. She lost two sons. But it caused her to tell time this way. She looked into the past with regret, and she looked to the future with anxiety. You ever know somebody like that? They're in a dark place, and so when they look back, they only have regret, and when they look forward, they only have anxiety. That's, they're telling time. That's how my time is. That's her narrative. And if you'd had a cup of coffee with Naomi in chapter 1, it would have been a bitter cup. Because nobody left a conversation with Naomi without her rehearsing all the bad things that had happened to her and her powerlessness to change. Probably some of you have been in this place. If you've been around long enough, you've met somebody in this place. I've got to tell you about my past, and it's just full of pain. And, and I'm, I'm judging there's really no good, no hope for me in the future. And I don't have any power to change anything. So there's a real hopelessness. And I just want to ask this as we get towards the close. How did God break through that narrative for Naomi? Who did he use? One more R. Ruth. A small light. The, the women come in and say, Let, let's remember the Redeemer, but let's, at the last R we want to remember, Naomi, let's remember Ruth. Verse 15, very key verse to circle. Your daughter-in-law who loves you. That's so key. This is the most powerful moment in the book. Because when you think about Ruth, if you just sort of know a surface detail of Ruth, you think it's a love story between Boaz and Ruth. But only one time in the whole book is love used, the word love used. And it's to describe Ruth's love for Naomi. It's really a, really a love story between a daughter-in-law and a mother. A mother-in-law. That's what it's really about. And what has happened is you find out how bitter Naomi is in her darkness. And as you just walk through each episode, you realize the love of Ruth is breaking through. And it's breaking through because she has hope. And she has enough hope to drag Naomi out of her bitterness. And she's going to be with her all the way through. Remember your daughter-in-law who loved you, who stayed with you. And what happens 
again, this is Kurt Thomas talking about people coming out of pain, is Naomi begins to shift her attention off of her suffering onto Ruth. You feel that? When, when you get in suffering, you've you got these blinders on, you can't see anything else, but Ruth comes all the way in next to her and says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you stare at me. I'm going to make you hear my hope. I'm going to watch, you're going to watch me move out and make, take action and see God at work. And then you see it in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. It begins to break down on Naomi. And she escapes her bitterness. Ruth was a small light of the steadfast love of Christ. Remember Jesus' last words in Matthew 28? Most of us would think of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples. But what, what's he say at the very end? And lo, I am what? With you. I, I am with you. I am with you. Even though you're broken down, even though you may think yourself as small, even though you think of your life as gross or insignificant or terrible, Jesus is saying, I am with you. And if you would just raise your eyes the smallest bit on me, my hope, my grace, it can pull you out of that darkness. Just like Ruth was a great model. So I want to come back and ask the question, is there a place you need to get out of the audience and be a participant? And stand with somebody. Like a small light. We're not talking about the whole world. We're not even talking about all of Wilmington. We're just talking about you and your neighborhood, you and your workplace, you and your family. And saying, hey, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to show you the love of Christ. And hopefully over time, Pull you out of your bitterness. Closing scene is verse 16. Sweet. Naomi's on her front porch in Bethlehem, sitting in a rocking chair holding a baby boy. And her bitterness has finally turned into a blessing. And Ruth, the small light, has no idea the kind of light she's given birth to. But I want you to hear some of the last words of Jesus in the Bible. They come in Revelation 22, which is the last chapter of the Bible. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, John, the writer, about these things for the churches. And let them know I am the root and descendant of David, comma, the bright morning star. Isn't that great? The, the small, tiny, little light of Ruth. She was just a candle compared to the bright morning star of Jesus Christ. And you, you can be this person to somebody. Probably you've had somebody be that person to you. So maybe like Nicholas Winton Instead of going on the ski trip, you take a little detour. 
Just get involved in somebody's life, somebody's distress. It may not seem like a lot. Time may go by and you don't keep up everything, but you're, you're at a right moment and God uses you like a small light. Mostly because you're just with them. Not that you come in and have answers. You, you notice that Ruth never came in to Naomi and said, let's analyze your situation here, Naomi. <laughs> she just came in and said, I, I love you. And I love God. And I'm going to watch you. I'm going to let you watch me love God. And that's going to be enough to pull people out. So we, it's a great day for communion because this is where we remember God for many things, but one thing, that he is with us. And the reason he left us this to do is because it's in, you internalize it. You ever think about that? You eat it. It gets inside of you. And Jesus says, I've come to leave my spirit that's going to be in, inside. And so you come forward saying, I'm with Jesus. He's with me. He's inside of me. So when you leave and you're lonely and you're driving home by yourself or you're alone tonight somehow and you just feel like nobody cares, I want you to know by coming up here, God is with you. He is with you in a very real sense. And he knew the disciples would need this to say, guys, I'm going to give my body, my blood for you. And I want you to have this simple meal that every time you take of it, you remember, I'm with you. I'm for you. No, no matter how far away you may feel, I came to be friends with people like you. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this table, I'm really praying for a transformative moment that only you can do. That you would take uh, simple elements and remind the, the bitter soul, the, the lost soul, the soul that thinks they're too far away, too far gone the lonely soul and remind them that you're their friend and you are with them i pray in jesus name amen